You're listening to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. In this episode, we're continuing a recent session from the University of Arizona College of Medicine titled, Approaches in Congestive Heart Failure. Let's return now to presenter Dr. Mark Friedman from the University of Arizona. So we all use diuretics. Most of our patients come in, they can't breathe, they're often volume overloaded, and they have definite clinical evidence of heart failure, and we use various diuretics, most often use Lasix, furosemide, but there are others that are effective and can be used, and there are some physicians in town here that actually use a lot of Bumex, which is a pretty effective diuretic agent. Now, compared to the other tables that I showed you, there's no A, B, C category for the diuretics here. And the reason for that is that diuretics have never been proven to improve survival in anything. In fact, there's thought that diuretics actually makes people have greater mortality because of the electrolyte fluxes that occur with very prominent use of diuretics and inability to keep potassium and magnesium levels adequate and that these people are more prone to arrhythmias. But if you want to make somebody feel better and if you want them to breathe, you need to use diuretics to improve their volume status. And so it is considered standard therapy for the heart failure patient to be on diuretics. We try actually very hard to get our patients on enough other therapies so that they don't have to use diuretics all the time. It's not easy to do that, and most patients won't get to that point. But if you can get your patient on enough preload and afterload reduction with an ACE inhibitor and enough beta blocker therapy to make the heart work a little bit easier, you may be able to get away without using daily diuretics. And then we use the patient's daily weight to tell us whether or not they are staying euvolemic, assuming you got them euvolemic when the last time you saw them, then that weight becomes their baseline weight. And if you can maintain that weight on an almost daily basis, uh, then theoretically the patient should stay clinically stable. Of note, there is a device that's actually been tested in Europe and is being tested in the United States, which is a hemodynamic monitor permanently implanted in the pulmonary artery that provides hemodynamic data by internet connections to a physician or whoever's monitoring this. And it's thought that we'll be able to actually tell people's volume status and their blood flow, cardiac outputs invasively after the device is in, but then monitoring them non-invasively after so that we can better regulate their medical therapy as opposed to just having them stand on a scale and call us and tell us what their weight and blood pressure is. Okay, so we're going to go through a little bit of what's recommended as treatment for the various stages of heart failure. So again, stage A, the patient at risk but has no structural disease at this point. And what's recommended is that you identify their risk factors and vigorously treat their risk factors. So their diabetes, their hypertension should be treated however you routinely do that with the goal of therapy being whatever the guidelines say. So systolic blood pressures you'd like as low as the patient will tolerate, preferably below 120. If you can get it there, diastolic pressure is definitely below 90, preferably below 80 if you can get it there. And you want to evaluate the patient regularly uh, because you want to make sure that you have those risk factors controlled and that the patient's not going on to develop progressive symptoms. Patients who are symptomatic, the recommendation is that you still control all their risk factors and that all these patients require drug therapy. They all need to be on ACE inhibitors. Hopefully, we'll tolerate that in combination with beta blockers. Uh, Coreg is the most popular one that's being used now. And they need to be on diuretics if they are fluid overloaded. In some patients who don't tolerate ACE inhibitors, ARBs can be used. Digitalis is an effective agent, 
And aldosterone antagonists like aldactone or Inspir have also been shown in combination with loop diuretics like Lasix to be effective in helping volume management. Also, aldactone and Inspir have been shown actually to improve survival in patients with at least class 3 heart failure. Dr. Alpert's not here, so we don't have to fight about hydralazine and nitrate. Hydralazine and nitrate was the initial preload, afterload reducing regimen that was used by the VA cooperative studies years ago in the 1970s, actually, to show for the first time that preload and afterload reduction improved survival in heart failure. And there were no ACE inhibitors, there were no OBS at that time, and so the concept was if you could reduce preload by dilating the venous system with a nitrate, and if you could reduce the systemic vascular resistance with a vasodilating drug like hydralazine, that the weakened heart would actually work better. And so in a big trial that was done, they showed that this combination did work and actually did improve survival in the heart failure patient population. And at the time this was done, standard therapy for heart failure were diuretics and digitalis because there were no other drugs. And so this was the first time that somebody came up with a totally different approach to the management of heart failure, and for the first time, they were able to show that we actually could make people better and improve their chance for surviving. The problem with this regimen is that hydralazine is a three times a day drug. The nitrate dose was a three times a day drug, and we know from experience that people don't take three times a day drugs. In addition, the dose of hydralazine that was required to get the effect was close to 100 milligrams every eight hours, and 100% of people who take that dose develop a positive ANA. They don't all have symptomatic lupus, but they all have abnormalities in their blood tests, and many of them became intolerant of the therapy. But hydralazine and nitrates, unlike the ACE inhibitors and the OBS, are not negative effect on the kidneys. So in a patient who has serious compromise of their renal function, who needs to be on this therapy for their heart failure, we do seriously consider using hydralazine and nitrates in those patients who do not tolerate more standard therapy with ACE inhibitors or OBS. People with bad hearts are prone to serious arrhythmias and die suddenly from ventricular fibrillation. And in certain patient populations in the heart failure group, whether it be ischemic or non-ischemic, defibrillators have been very effective in improving the chance for survival and at least preventing deaths from arrhythmias. The problem is if you prevent the arrhythmic death then you also need to treat the patient effectively so that they don't drown and die from heart failure. Cardiac resynchronization therapy in a select group of people who have conduction system abnormalities, wide QRS complexes on their EKG, basically have what we call dyssynchronous contraction, where the lateral wall of the heart and the septum and the anterior wall of the heart are not all contracting together to give a uniform contraction pattern because of the conduction system abnormality. And pacing has been effective in trying to reverse that dyssynchronous contraction pattern and actually improve left ventricular function and help with management of heart failure. Not a huge patient population, but an increasing number of patients because the studies are looking at using this therapy in earlier and earlier situations and in patients who are not quite as sick as the initial protocols required. Exercise testing and training is pretty important. Obviously, you can't take a patient who's laying in bed and can't breathe and can't move and put them on an exercise program. But once the patient's treated and is up and can be active, getting them in good general physical condition becomes very, very important. And cardiac rehab programs are going to become more and more important in the management of these chronic heart failure patients. So just to go over briefly how these systems work in the guidelines, 
there are basically three classifications, uh, one, two, and three, which says that we either should do it, we think we should do it, or we shouldn't do it. So if there is a lot of information and a consensus uh, that there is something to do that's really beneficial and good, it's usually given a class one indication. If there's a general consensus that there, and there are some data to support specific uh, intervention, and most people agree that it's the right thing to do, then it's usually classified 2A. And if there's a controversial therapy or uh, intervention where there is benefit for sure, but some people don't agree that it's of uh, real major importance, uh, they would classify it as a 2B indication. And if there's really a reason not to do it because it's harmful, then it's given a class 3 indication. So of all the uh, general measures, uh, nobody would ever argue that treating somebody's hypertension or diabetes or whatever is bad, and so that's really not given any indication at all, but everybody agrees that you should do that. There are certain medications we've talked about already uh, that are effective in managing patients with heart failure, and they are given a class one indication if they're used appropriately, and I should go through what this A, B, and C classification means here as well. So you can have something that everybody agrees is the right thing to do. Uh, there are actually some data to support that it's the right thing to do. And if there are a large number of randomized controlled studies that prove it, then it's designated as an A. If there are some studies, they're not all randomized controlled big studies, but there's at least some data to support an indication, it would be given a B classification. And if it's a bunch of people sitting around the room, Dr. Avey, Dr. Marcus, and not me, would be sitting around the room and say, this is the right thing to do, then it's given a C, which is basically a consensus that we think it should be done, and there may not be a whole lot of data to support that. So we use diuretics, as I mentioned before, in almost all our patients who are symptomatic. And everybody agrees that diuretics are the right thing to do. There are no studies out there to say that diuretics are effective in doing anything except making people feel better. So there is a consensus opinion that diuretics are very important in the treatment and management of heart failure. There are no randomized controlled studies that show that diuretics really make people better from the standpoint of living longer. There are randomized controlled studies with ACE inhibitors, so that's given a class one a indication, meaning that there are good, large studies to show that there's benefit. And there are studies out there where people looked at the combination of ACE inhibitors. If an ACE inhibitor worked and an ARB worked, why not combine the two? Because they work at slightly different points on the hormonal cycle. And so maybe together they'd work better. And then since drugs like aldactone also are effective, why not put all three together? And that should be ideal. Well, the problem is that these people all developed hyperkalemia and died in hyperkalemic deaths, and so currently the recommendation is not to do that. So the angiotensin receptor blockers were given a 1A designation because there are randomized controlled studies in patients with heart failure who benefit from ARBs, specifically the patients who are intolerant for whatever reason to ACE inhibitors. ARBs are an acceptable substitute. So this gets stated over and over and over again that if the patient's on an ACE, adding an ARB may be a benefit, not a whole lot of data to support that, but adding the ARB and adding an aldosterone antagonist on top of that is not recommended. Individually, uh, using diuretics with drugs like aldactone or Inspir, there is a 1B indication, meaning there are some studies that support the use of those agents in combination with more standard heart failure therapy. And again, emphasized again, all three drugs together are not recommended. So, of the three proven beta blockers, one not available in the United States, so the two that we have, there is a 1A indication for the addition of beta blockers 
to patients who are, quote, stable. So that does not mean that the patient who comes in the hospital drowning, whose wedge pressure is 40, will be started on a beta blocker and get better. That patient is not going to get better. That patient is actually has a chance of being made much worse. So if you read the PDR from the 1970s when Indural was the only beta blocker available, the PDR says that Indural is contraindicated in the heart failure patient. Because it was recognized very early that if you took a patient with decompensated heart failure and you beta blocked them, they crashed. They did not do well and they died. And so that was the initial impression that you couldn't use beta blockers in heart failure patients because if you took away their sympathetic drive, they just got into real trouble and they had a high mortality. It took a lot of effort and guts, I think, for somebody to go back and say, okay, and the patient who's not quite that sick, who's not decompensated, who's now better on standard therapy, can we get additional benefit from taking away that sympathetic drive that might be detrimental in the long run? Because we knew that treating people with high doses of beta-stimulating drugs like dobutamine, long-term was harmful. Short-term, you could get somebody feeling better with dobutamine, but dobutamine destroys heart muscle cells over a period of time, and so long-term therapy is not really recommended with that type of medication. So the thought was, well, if the sympathetic drive in the heart failure patient is high and we take away that sympathetic drive, maybe this patient will do better. And the studies were done with Topol XL and with Coreg and actually showed significant benefit. So I would agree with Dr. Alpert that patients who are on chronic heart failure therapy should be on beta blockers. The argument is, when do you start the beta blocker? Do you start at day one, or you just start it when the patient is on other therapy, stable, and add that as the last agent, which is the way I approach it and the way Dr. Stevenson approaches it when she was here as a visiting professor. We'll return for more from this session of Grand Rounds Nation after a short break. <laughs> 